and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One cash transfer program that we haven't talked about on this podcast to date is the program that was started in Iran back in 2010. It hasn't gotten nearly as much coverage as a lot of the other programs that you typically hear about in the Basic Income discussion. But since 2010, Iran has actually been providing payments to their citizens, and for certain periods to actually every resident of the country, coming from funds they had from their energy reserves. So I got to speak with Javad Salahi Fahani, who is a professor of economics at Virginia Tech and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has done as much research as anyone on the Iranian program. So here's Owen's conversation with Professor Salahi Isfahan. Javad, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. So first, could you just tell our listeners about Iran's cash transfer program and how it works? Yes, uh, I should begin by saying that it was set up as a compensation for a very large increase in energy prices in December of 2010. The Iranian government sells the bulk of energy to its citizens because Iran is an, is an oil-rich country, and it has kept prices constant for a long time. So as a result, to bring them to international levels, it had to increase prices by factors of two to nine, so very large increases. And in order to make that possible, basically to... Uh, prevent social unrest as a result of such a big jolt to the incomes of the poor, it decided to uh, implement a cash transfer program alongside. And so simultaneously, when they increased energy prices, they uh, deposited cash in people's bank accounts, uh, about 70 million people. And the amount of money was fairly significant. It was about $45 per person per month. And if you uh, calculated that at sort of international dollars, dollars that reflect the lower cost of living in Iran, it would be about $90 per person per month, uh, which adds up to about $40 billion for the country. And that's about 10% of the GDP. So it's a very large program. And you mentioned that 70 million people, I believe that's the majority of the country. Who gets it and who doesn't under this program? It's a very good question. You know, at the beginning, then Iranian president Ahmadinejad wanted to give it to the poor. They couldn't identify the poor. Uh, They tried running surveys, getting households to fill in questionnaires, but they found out that that wasn't a very accurate way of uh, finding out people's income and wealth. So in the last minute, basically, they said, okay, we're going to give it to everybody. So everybody had to go register, identify a bank account, and give that number to the government. And eventually, say within a few months, 95% of Iranians had done that. So it became a universal cash transfer program. And so anyone who registers gets it. Uh, Was there any pushback to the idea of giving your your information and your bank account information to the government or it sounds like sounds like not actually just from the that 95 percent number no that's correct i think there was very little fear of giving a bank account because it was a dedicated bank account that was set up for this specific purpose Uh, and you get an atm and you could get the money from that account there were doubts about how true this was 
So some people did not register at the beginning. Some like 30% did not register in the first few months because uh, they didn't really believe the government would, uh, would follow through with it. But then they were surprised and they found out it was happening. Their neighbors were getting it. So um, when they opened registration again two months later, they registered. Yeah, that's very helpful in understanding how a future basic income or cash transfer program could work, perhaps in the U.S. So you studied the effects of this program on labor supply. To start, what are the overall effects of the, this cash transfer program uh, on people's employment? Well, you know, it's very hard to identify impact of this sort. The reason being that at the time, Iran was having other macroeconomic shocks. For example, about the same time, Iran was under sanctions, uh, which is happening again. So an economic shock of that order that came as a result of sanctions in around 2011, uh, that changes labor demand. So if you observe any changes in uh, labor supply or employment rates, you don't know which shock had caused it, whether it was the cash transfer or something else that happened in the economy. So what we did was to look at uh, a panel data in which people were observed in 2010 before they received cash and 2011. And we made a comparison of their labor supply between the two years. And we also had uh, an idea of whose income had received the bigger shock because we observed people's incomes. And if you're poor uh, and you receive uh, $45 per month per person, uh, then you get a much bigger income shock. You know, like if you're poor, maybe that is your income level. Uh, so your income goes up by 100%. We have people in the survey whose income doubled. And then you have very rich people whose income barely changes as a result. We took advantage of this variation in the, what we call intensity of the shock to see if labor supply had uh, changed uh, or had changed differently for uh, poor and rich and we could not observe anything. And so you found, found no real effects on, on labor supply? Yes, uh, and this was very interesting because uh, I should give you a little bit of background. In Iran, uh, this program was in essence a very good program because it was redirecting a very bad and distorting subsidy, energy subsidies, to cash transfer. So it was very hard to disagree with it, unlike UBI, where people are objecting to the financing part of the program. It was very hard to object to the financing part of uh, the Ahmadinejad program. So most of the criticism that came from the middle class, upper middle class, kind of new liberal economists was that this money was going to make people lazy and not work. So we were looking at labor supply in a very, uh, at, at a very time when the dominant opinion expressed in Iranian business journals, other newspapers, partly because most of them hated Ahmadinejad, you know, the liberal media in Iran for good reason did not like Ahmadinejad. But they also didn't like this program as a result. And the overwhelming opinion in the country was that people had become lazy. There were stories of uh, half a million agricultural workers having walked out of their jobs because now they had money. 
Uh, I personally found that really offensive because uh, there are all sorts of cash transfers going to middle and rich income, uh, rich people in Iran. Because when you have an oil exporting economy, you know, 60, 70 billion dollars a year is being somehow transferred to the population. Uh, and nobody had ever complained that the middle class was getting lazy or the upper class was getting lazy because they were receiving some sort of rent. Uh, so I was very skeptical to, from the beginning, but then we decided to look at the data very carefully and we tried every which way. And uh, we could not identify a negative labor supply effect. In fact, a couple of places we found positive labor supply effects that does that do make sense. For example, we found if you are self-employed, you are likely to work more. And uh, although we didn't know exactly why that would happen, uh, we speculated that perhaps they use the cash to expand their businesses. This would be small shopkeepers, for example, who could buy uh, uh, more supplies, uh, could expand their shop and so on. So it was interesting that in a few cases, we found that uh, uh, having cash helped you work more rather than less. Yeah, and I believe you also found an increase in women working as well as a result of the program. Is that right? That's right. Yes, that's right. Something like this has been found elsewhere in the world and sometimes is attributed to the ability of these women to buy childcare and therefore work. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the reason in Iran. Uh, it could be a number of reasons. It could be that women claim that cash inside the household and that increases their bargaining power and they're more likely to say, I want to set up a small business. A lot of Iranian women do have businesses from their homes. Uh, for example, they uh, sell cooked food. Uh, they use internet uh, to uh, find customers and deliver uh, home cooked food. So could be a number of reasons, but we did find uh, that effect that women were likely to work more uh, if the uh, cash transfer was a larger proportion of their incomes. And you also found that there were one or two groups that worked a little bit less. Is that right? Yes. You know, when you do a estimation like this, depending on what variables you put in, what actual equation you estimate, you get uh, different results. I am not recalling exactly what were those groups for whom labor supply had decreased, but there was no decrease that I recall that was significant. Yeah. And... Thinking about you know the the context of Iran versus perhaps the United States, do you think we can take these results and learn from them if we want to think about a, a cash transfer program in the U.S. of a similar nature? Uh, yes, uh, with one caveat. You know, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, universal basic income has two components. One is giving cash to people. The other is uh, finding the money for it. If that money comes from taxation, then it becomes much more uh, controversial. Iran's story is not applicable in that sense to UBI because the source of funds were from uh, raising energy prices or reducing the subsidies to energy, which uh, is a uh, you know unmitigated good thing. But the 
other part, which is what happens if you give money to poor people, whether they're likely to increase their leisure, work less. Uh, that part, I think, is very relevant. Uh, and there is evidence, not just from Iran, but there's evidence from smaller scale programs in developing countries that's relevant. As you may know, there's a, a famous paper now by very famous development economists like Banerjee, Duflo, and others, uh, people at uh, MIT, who um, actually the title of their paper is The Myth of the Lazy Poor. So I think our paper falls into that category. It dispels this idea that if you give money to the poor, the first thing they think about is to take time off from work. Uh, I think it supports the idea that uh, I have, others have, of the poor, which is they have such a long list of wishes that leisure is the last thing that comes to their mind when you give them more money. They want to, if they're doing, if they're engaged in a business, they would probably want to expand that. Who wouldn't? They probably have children in school who need school supplies. Maybe they have medical needs. So I find the evidence from Iran uh, very supportive of this that when you give people cash, they are going to decide what they want to do with it. And the last thing that you should think is that they're going to stop working. Uh, they are poor, they have lots of unmet needs, and they're probably working very hard trying to figure out where to spend that money. And you mentioned that the, the public reaction, or at least the reaction in the media to the program, was largely negative, and, and that was somewhat at least um, a reaction to Ahmadinejad, the president. Now that he's no longer president, do you think the public reaction has shifted at all, maybe to reflect the data a little bit more? It might have. Unfortunately, the Rouhani government that succeeded Ahmadinejad kept badmouthing this program. Uh, they used this unfortunate language of fostering beggars. Uh, I've talked to a lot of poor people in Iran who receive cash transfer. They take that very personal. They are not stupid. They understand the source of this money is Iran's natural wealth. Iran uses twice as much oil and gas inside Iran than it exports. And they would like to see that distributed more equally. When you give gasoline subsidies, you are giving the bulk of that subsidy to uh, upper income people who drive more. Uh, when you give natural gas subsidy, you're subsidizing richer people who have larger homes to heat and so on. So uh, unfortunately, we never got to find out whether this middle class, upper middle class Iranians had become a little bit more tolerant of their fellow citizens. Uh, I should add that Iran is a fairly polarized society. And the, the middle class and upper middle class associate support for the Islamic government with the lower income people. And there's also a history of feudalism in Iran, that the poor were supposed to be servants of the rich. So to give them cash, I mean, the first thing a feudal lord would think is that if, you, if your workers, if your uh, subjects are not hungry, they're not going to work as much for you. There is a lingering of that attitude in Iran uh, on top of the fact that they didn't like Ahmadinejad. And I actually thought that the uh, Rouhani government could have tried to fight that kind of attitude because there's no way Iranians can make progress with their uh, democracy if this kind of polarization and these kind of attitudes persist. 
and trying to get people to understand that every liter of gas gasoline that's used in Iran is the property of all Iranians. And the proceeds from that should be distributed equally. And that giving free gasoline, today Iran is almost giving free gasoline, is about 30 cents a gallon, is much worse, has much worse consequences for the economy than taking that, uh, charging the market price and taking that money, giving it to a poor person. Uh, the other thing that I think is very important to understand for Iran uh, is that universality of this payment has not been given enough credit. What Rouhani has done, he has actually tripled the amount of money that the poor get, but he has tried very hard to cut off people from the up, uh, upper scales, uh, the upper uh, deciles of income from this program. And that's very unfortunate because uh, I believe that a lot of the negative results we observe for various income assistance programs is because they have what economists call the cliff effect. That, that is when a person gets close to this threshold of income, after which they do not qualify for assistance, they may stop work. And universality uh, does away with that threshold, does away with that cliff. And what they have done in Iran is they've gone back from a universal program to a conditional program, a means-tested program, which I think is going to exacerbate the poverty problem in Iran. Uh, but that's something that UBI, uh, that's an advantage UBI programs have. That's very interesting. How behaviors change uh, around that cliff, but also that the problem isn't necessarily with the, the poor people who suddenly have a lot more uh, purchasing power. It's maybe with middle income people who, um, if they see that cliff coming, are going to react to it. Those are the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you'd like to add uh, from your research or just on the, the cash transfer program in general? One thing I would like to add, which is Iran uh, has a poverty issue. There is like 10 million people who are classified as poor by international standards. And when this program was first instituted, because inflation hadn't started yet, and the magnitude uh, about a dollar fifty per person per day was quite significant uh, contribution to people's income poverty fell significantly we estimated that in rural areas uh, poverty came from uh, 13 percent to around four percent which is very significant and now uh, because inflation has been very very high and again, it picked up this year because of the arrival of new sanctions. Uh, the amount of this cash transfer has become very little, uh, maybe one-fourth, one-fifth of what it used to be. So uh, the program, in a way, uh, not only removed uh, a very destructive subsidy, which is energy subsidy, it also reduced uh, poverty significantly uh, when it was... Uh, at the beginning, a substantial amount of money that was being distributed, and it did not cause any negative labor supply effects. So I would say the Iranian experience is probably a very clean, clear case of a successful uh, program for any oil exporting country that wants to cut down on its energy subsidies that are destructive of the environment and also favor uh, capital intensity, which then hurts employment.
developing countries, oil exporting countries in particular, are struggling with these issues, and they would do well to uh, take a look at Iran's case. That was Owen's interview with Professor Salahi Isfahan on the Basic Income Podcast. So that was really interesting to hear all the dynamics that were at play in Iran's program here, because on, on one hand, there's a lot of similarities, I feel like, to a lot of other programs we discussed, but it was definitely, it felt very unique in a lot of ways. Uh, one thing that struck me is that I did, it, comparing to everything else out there that exists in the cash transfer basic income-like space, I would say I saw the most parallels to Alaska. Uh, I think a big part of that is simply because the framing of this and, and really where the revenue comes from is related to oil. But also the observations around work, I felt like matched up very closely with the observations that have been had around Alaska as well. This wasn't something that seemed to have any sort of decrease in full-time work. And it actually seemed to encourage part-time work among certain groups. Yeah. And I think women most notably, uh, and I think he was speculating, but I think probably rightly so that that has a lot to do with childcare. Is, as many of us well know, when you've got a kid, someone has to take care of that kid, and either that's a parent or someone, or a family member or someone the parents are paying. And just by, then that's a way you can translate money into free time or hours spent working very directly. And that, so it's not surprising to me that we see those effects. And really, this does align with our larger vision of, of what a universal basic income would ultimately do, because we do see this as an empowering policy, one that can allow people to pursue new and different types of work. And some of that should be work that actually leads people to higher compensation. And so this, this may be a, a very specific instance of starting to see that manifest when you do have women who suddenly don't have the same level of fixed burden on themselves and some of those, some of them then decide, okay, now I'm going to go and start earning something extra. Yeah. And honestly, that's part of the policy that I think scares some people. I mean, one reaction I've got is, you know, who's going to clean the sewers? Who's going to pick the crops? And uh, it's like, well, we'll figure that out. <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe we don't need to be kind of entrapping people in economic insecurity to, to make this happen. But, uh, but yeah, we're so used to this system where people are entrapped by their financial situation. So to provide some liberation is an intimidating idea for some people. I think that's right. And I also found that particularly interesting that that seemed to be far more explicit in Iran because there's more of this established servant class. People were scared that, oh, if we're actually empowering everyone, who is going to wait on us and who will we have power over to be able to, to make do what we want? And another note I thought that was instructive, just for thinking about a basic income future potentially is that the sign-up rate was not very high until people saw their friends and their family getting checks. And I, I think that um, it's very possible you'd see something like that in the U.S. People just be kind of paranoid around this. It really depends on how it was delivered and how it was framed, but I'm sure you'll see a subset of people who just don't trust it until their friends are getting it. I feel like I've had many conversations where they, they may not have said it explicitly, but it was pretty clear that people just had no faith that a program like that would actually end up giving them anything. That there's the idea that, oh, this is another political promise. What does that mean for me? Probably nothing. And so actually having that proof of, oh, wait, my neighbor just got a check in the mail. 
maybe I should take this more seriously. That's definitely changes people's psychology around the whole thing. Yeah, and speaking of people's psychology, it is you know instructive, if a little disheartening, that there were still a lot of negative stigmas that persist around this. I think basically without evidence, I mean, you can always find a person to, who reinforces whatever idea you want to reinforce, but, um, but yeah, those are gonna be hard to overcome. Yeah, I mean, we have these, I mean, this classism, really, this idea that, oh, I'm, my people, sure, we'll be responsible and, and we'll be fine with this, but oh, those people over there, the bad things are going to happen if, if we don't construct a box around everything they can do in life. And so I think that that almost certainly speaks to something far more, far beyond the scope of, of just any sort of cash transfer program we're talking about, but rather to larger societal dynamics at play. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts or the service of your choice. And please tell your friends. We're always looking to bring more people into this conversation. We'll talk to you next week. Music